Every American is acutely aware of the issues surrounding our health care system. We know miracles can happen, but we find ourselves bombarded by conflicting information and are uncertain of what and whom we can trust. We have some of the best medical care in the world for those who can afford it. Incredible new drugs that change people's lives but can be very costly. Many of the best doctors the world has ever seen, but not all are perfect. That's why Dr. Steve Feldman created the show, Getting Better Health Care, to help walk us through the labyrinth, helping us understand how to take better care of ourselves and to better understand the challenges, issues, controversies, and complexities of our health care system as it exists and as it could be. For better health care and a better health care system, listen to the doctor. Now, here's Steve. Welcome to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm your host, Dr. Steve Feldman, founder of the drscore.com physician rating website. On our show last week, we discussed the problem of who's looking after the hospitals. When you go to the hospital, you want to know that somebody is keeping an eye on the place, and there's hospital accreditation for that. But what are you what about the doctors? There are over 700,000 doctors in the United States. Who's looking out after them? That job falls to state medical boards. To learn more about state medical boards, we're going to be talking with Dr. Humayun Chowdhury, the president and CEO of the Federation of State Medical Boards, which is an umbrella organization of state medical boards from around the country. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for joining me on the program today. My pleasure. Thank you. Let's start um, with just some basics. Can you tell our audience what it is that state medical boards do? Sure. Um, And it's an important question, and I think the average person probably does not know uh, the role of state medical boards or the Federation of State Medical Boards. Uh, Essentially, since the founding of this nation, uh, specifically with the Bill of Rights dating back to 1791, the states have always had the right to regulate health care. Some people think it's the federal government, but it's actually the states. And so um, in the early 1800s is when this notion of state medical boards began in terms of regulating health care, specifically licensing and disciplining physicians with the ultimate goal of protecting the public. So we've had state medical boards since uh, the 1800s. There, there is one for every state. In fact, we have two types of boards, one for state medical boards, uh, and then others for state osteopathic boards, and sometimes there are conjoint boards. So even though there are 50 states and about six or seven U.S. territories, there are a total of 70 state medical and osteopathic boards, and the Federation of State Medical Boards has been around for nearly a century. We are the nonprofit umbrella agency, if you will, for all of these state medical boards. But we play a vital role in protecting the public, but oftentimes uh, no one knows us. Yeah. I have this. That's quite a history. Uh, yeah. I have a sense that the practice of medicine may have changed somewhat um, over that over that period of time. Oh, absolutely. Not only has the practice of medicine changed, but also this whole notion of regulating physicians has changed. For instance, years ago and even a couple of centuries ago, the way in which people uh, obtained a license or the authority to practice medicine was sometimes given by medical schools, uh, sometimes given by state medical societies. 
as I say, it wasn't until the early 1800s when it was felt that that's sort of a conflict of interest, um, yeah. and perhaps an independent medical board sanctioned by a state government should be the entity that does this. And um, at one time, several decades ago, Steve, every state medical board had its own examination, for instance. And sometimes it was an oral examination or sometimes a combination of an essay examination to uh, qualify somebody to practice medicine even after they've graduated from medical school. Um, just to give you an idea of how far we've come, since 1991, we've had two main examinations for licensure. We have the United States Medical Licensing Examination, the USMLE, which the Federation helps co-produce, that is accepted by all state medical boards. And in, for the osteopathic physicians, we have something called the Comprehensive um, Osteopathic Medical Licensing Examination. But there essentially are two exams that are accepted by the state medical boards for licensure. And that's a great advance if you think about it, rather than having 50 different exams. So. I imagine there may be some variation by state in what it takes to get a license, but the basics of it, let, let our audience know, what does it take for a doctor to get a medical license? Excellent question. And, and let me answer your first part of your question first. You're absolutely correct. Uh, different states have different ways in which they do this. In some cases, the medical boards are completely independent. In some cases, they report to a state department of health. Uh, in most cases, the members of the state medical boards, and this sometimes people don't know, are actually volunteers, whether they are physicians, lawyers, or uh, public members, and nearly every state medical board has members of the public on it. Uh, there's nominal reimbursement for you know attendance at these meetings, but it's really uh, hard works, hard hard labor for uh, on the part of many of the board members. Um, so there are variations in which um, the different states have different resources. Um, your second question was related to uh, what, what, what actually goes into yeah. place to create a physician. Is exactly that fair. Well, uh, in this country, and it varies uh, compared to other parts of the world, but in this country, you need a bachelor's degree, four years of college, which wasn't always the case, by the way, and we can talk about history. It's fascinating, if you like, at some point. But four years of college, typically four years of medical school, and then typically 95-plus percent of graduates of medical school, whether they are MDs or DOs, will end up doing at least three years of residency. I had a good friend of mine uh, in New York who became an interventional cardiologist. Well, to be an interventional cardiologist, that's someone who does cardiac catheterizations, for instance, you need not only four years of college and four years of medical school, you need three years of internal medicine, three years of traditional cardiology, and then an additional year of interventional car uh, cardiology fellowship. So we're talking many, many years of training. It's one of the most robust systems in place with assessments along the way, uh, even beginning with entry into medical school with the MCAT exam, the Medical College Admission Test, and then throughout the course of their undergraduate and graduate medical education, there are assessments along the way, whether it's examinations at the school level or the board examinations, the state medical board examinations the USMLE or the COMLEX. And then even afterward, if you achieve uh, board certification in a particular specialty, that also involves an examination and assessment. And then, of course, there is lifelong learning after that. So a lot goes into the training and education of a physician. And that piece of paper that that physician has in his or her office, the license to practice medicine and surgery really has great value, especially in the United States. So to get a license to practice medicine, you'll have to have completed medical school, which means you have to have gone to a pretty good college, too. Um, you'll have to have done um, 
to get the license, you probably have to do at least one year past medical school typically or maybe a full yeah, residency? T- typically, yeah. The, uh, the licensing exams, whether it's the USMLE or the Comlex, are typically right now they're in three steps. Uh, the first two steps are given during the course of undergraduate medical education. The last step, the third step, is traditionally given sometime at the end of the first year after um, your graduation from medical school, and it really is designed to assess specifically the ability to practice, quote-unquote, independently, as opposed to during undergraduate medical education when you are still under the tutelage, if you will, of professors and mentors and supervisory physicians. So that's actually a critical step, and the Federation of State Medical Boards actually is intimately involved in the development and administration of that step three, because once they've completed that successfully, then they are eligible to come before a state medical board for licensure. So to get the license, you've gone through school, you may have done some residency, and you will have taken a licensing exam. And then in addition to that, they're probably going to want some letters of reference. Um, That's correct. And And, and it varies. You know, in some cases, you will have to sit before the state medical board who will assess your file with you and and you know, present before the board before they actually give you that license. It, so I think most people in the public would be quite impressed that the process is rather uh, difficult but also robust in making sure that the end product is someone who can deliver quality health care in a way that is standardized and uniform. Excellent. And there's a separate, separate issue of board certification, and uh, our audience probably wants to know that the board certification process is yet a whole nother organization, a whole nother pathway in addition to being licensed that is designed to help guarantee a certain level of quality. That's right, Steve. You know, you almost need a scorecard <laughs> to keep track of all this if you're not uh, in the profession already, but you're absolutely correct. Uh, licensure is the ability uh, given and bestowed by a state a medical board or a state osteopathic board to practice what's known as the general undifferentiated practice of medicine. It is a basic competency. Board certification, as I alluded to earlier, is something that can be acquired after completion of a residency in a specific specialty. Now, the specialty doesn't have to be micro-specific. It doesn't have to be, for instance, interventional cardiology. It could be internal medicine. It could be family medicine. It could be pediatrics. But once you've completed the residency training in that specialty, if you take their board examination, the specialty board examination, different from the state board examination, then you acquire the the status of being board certified in that specialty. Now, board certification is not a requirement for licensure. None of the state medical boards require board certification in a specialty, and not every physician has it. It does not mean that they are not qualified. All physicians, and we have 735,000 of them, Steve, across the country who have a license to actively practice medicine, Um, the vast majority of them are licensed physicians, but they're not necessarily specially board certified. It's an added level of expertise, if you will, and um, um, you know, but it's not something that's required. Now, we've talked about basic competency, and we've talked about what it takes to get your license initially, but you alluded to the fact that all those years of training, basically, if you include college, it's roughly 10, 11 years at a minimum, right. and it could be, you know, t- another five or more after that, 
Um, but it's there, there are lifelong requirements for continued training because medicine changes and medical boards aren't satisfied with just giving you a license. They want to know that you're keeping up with things. That's great. Uh, yeah, that's absolutely correct, Steve. And it's a great segue into an important discussion of something that is going on right now in the medical regulatory community. Um, you're absolutely correct. For years, once you got the license, it was really a lifelong uh, distinction that you carried really until you elected to give up the practice of medicine, which could be at retirement or death because many physicians tend to not retire. They seem to go on uh, until they're you know, not able to do so. Um, there has been a sense, a growing sense over the last several decades, especially as we talk about quality health care, the need to make sure that with the explosion of technology and explosion of knowledge and the vast amount of information that one needs today to be a physician as compared to years or decades ago, the need for some demonstration on the part of these physicians of ongoing competency. In the area of specialty board certification, about 10 years ago, about a decade ago, both the American Board of Medical Specialties and the American Osteopathic Association came up with a means by which that certification would no longer be unlimited, meaning there would be a time of expiration, and if you wanted to continue to have that status of being board certified, you had to do what's known as MOC, Maintenance of Certification. I'm going, to, I'm going to get somebody from the American Board of Medical Specialties on our show to discuss that. Great, I, great. Because that's and an important topic. Now, with that said, that's for specialty board certified physicians. What about the vast majority, 735,000 physicians who have that license. What about that license? Is there something about that license that requires them to continue to demonstrate that they're keeping up, uh, frankly? And over the last several decades, continuing medical education has played a valuable role uh, and a number of state medical boards, the majority as a matter of fact, require that every time you renew your license, that you demonstrate that you've done something to demonstrate that you're keeping up. And continuing medical education, whether it's attending a conference or reading a journal and taking a quiz at the end of it, uh, any number of these things can qualify that. Qualify for that. And different states have different requirements in terms of how many hours of continuing medical education you do during that interval uh, before renewal of licensure. And renewal of licensure, by the way, also varies. Some states have a one-year renewal. Some states have two, three. A couple of states even have a four-year renewal. But the question that came up at the level of the Federation of State Medical Boards about seven years ago was, is that enough? Just having a physician demonstrate that they attended a conference or a, a few conferences every uh, few years or a few times every few years, is that enough to demonstrate to the general public that they are doing everything possible to keep up, especially in their own scope of practice? You know, I, I think and, that um, this, this, is, this is something that our society is facing rather broadly. I think when President Bush uh, gave us No Child Left Behind, it, it opened an era where showing that you're taking courses isn't good enough, that you need to show the outcomes. Uh, teachers need to show that, that the, the, the students were meeting standards. And uh, it seems like we're entering an era where doctors are going to have to show not just that they're taking a CME class, but that they're actually providing a, a, a certain level of quality. That's absolutely correct. And that's and, uh, quite a challenge. You, you hit it right on the nose, Steve. 
because there is a broader context under which this sort of discussion went on in the medical profession. You're absolutely correct. We were not alone. Many other sectors in the broader education community were looking at similar things. And really what kind of pushed us in this direction was some of the reports that came out 10 or 15 years ago by the Institute of Medicine uh, to air as human, the quality chasm reports that pointed to the need for licensed physicians to really demonstrate that they are able to address um, the need to address quality health care and patient safety on an ongoing basis. And so what happened was that about six years ago, the Federation of State Medical Boards, after setting up some committees to look at this, made a very, very important decision. Their House of Delegates passed an important resolution in which there was a consensus that we at, at state medical boards owe it to the public to demonstrate to them that the licensed physician is going to be demonstrating ongoing competency in their field. Of course, the challenge was how do you actually make that happen? And so for the last six years, we've been having some very productive discussions and debates uh, in terms of how best to do this. And I'm happy to report that as of last month in Chicago, the Federation of State Medical Board's House of Delegates overwhelmingly supported a notion of what's known, now known as MOL, maintenance of licensure. It's something that the Federation of State Medical Boards now supports, and in time, the state medical boards will be implementing. It's a more robust system than just continuing medical education credits. It will look at not only um, an assessment of your knowledge and skills, ultimately, but also what difference is it having in your actual practice of medicine or surgery. And this is in many ways revolutionary, but it turns out we're not the only ones doing this. United Kingdom is doing this, Canada is doing this, Australia is doing this, New Zealand, a number of other nations are also doing this, but we're excited about that. You're listening to Getting Better Healthcare on webtalkradio.net. I'm Steve Feldman. I'm speaking with Dr. Chowdhury from the Federation of State Medical Boards. Dr. Chowdhury, the idea of maintenance of licensure and demonstrating ongoing competency is easier said than done. That's absolutely correct. And, you know, it's still below the radar. The average physician probably does not even know that uh, this sort of movement is underway, uh, but we're doing everything we can to get the word out. Uh, but as I say, the Federation is not an enforcement agency. What we do, though, is we guide, we educate, and train our state medical boards, and in response to their needs, we work for them. So the fact that the state medical boards have asked us to put this together, this program of maintenance of licensure, is very encouraging indeed, and I think very timely as well. But ultimately, it's not designed to get rid of doctors or to eliminate people's licenses who do practice medicine. We strongly suspect and we know that the vast majority of physicians are already doing lots of things to keep up with their competency. How could you not? There's so much going on. There's new medications, new therapeutic interventions, new diagnostic technologies. I mean, when you uh, devote your life to, to patients. Physicians. Yeah, when you devote your life to patients, when you, you know, created a career of making sure your patients are getting great medical care, I think, I think that's that, that doctors' commitments to that process is sometimes lost and isn't recognized. It's it's not news. The newspapers aren't going to write anything about that. And so, I expect you're right. I expect that that physicians are regularly doing what they can to keep up, quantifying it in such a way that you could communicate it and assure people 
that this doctor is meeting some kind of standards, I think is a very difficult prospect. One, one wonders how one might do that. Would you send an auditor into the office to watch them practice? Would you, I mean, just collecting quantitative data, it would be very hard to capture the essence of the, the physician-patient interaction and, and, and all that's involved in giving a patient a great medical experience. We don't, that's a great question, Steve. We don't envision doing audits like that where we actually send people into people's offices, although it's funny you said that because a number of countries are doing just that. They're randomly doing an audit by sending various investigators into physicians' offices. What we're recommending is, uh, and this is just a framework that we're proposing. Some of the details are literally being worked out as we speak in terms of how to implement this, but part of this has to be reflective self-assessment on the part of the physician. In other words, what do you know best and what areas have you identified as areas where you need to maybe brush up on or, or stay up to date on? So that's really a self-reporting type of uh, situation, but not just telling us what area that you need to work on, but what have you done, therefore, to uh, respond to that need. The assessment of knowledge and skills has to be focused on your core area of practice. You may have a board certification, for instance, in family medicine, and yet you work in an emergency department, let's say. Well, your scope of practice is going to be somewhat different, and it shouldn't be based upon what title you have from your board specialty um, training, but it should be on what you're actually doing on the ground. And then so. the third, third piece is probably the most challenging is how do you demonstrate that all these things that you're doing are actually making a difference in your practice? Um, this is going to take some years before we fully implemented all the state medical boards, but two important principles, Steve. They are not designed to be burdensome. Uh, I think physicians have enough issues and paperwork and hassle uh, in terms of delivering health care, so we don't want anything to be done that uh, uh, eliminates or diminishes the ability for, of a physician to provide quality health care. But second, it also has to be reasonable and uh, uh, something that can demonstrate that what they're doing is making a difference. At the beginning of the show, you mentioned that state medical boards are involved in licensing and disciplining physicians, and we've discussed the licensing aspect pretty well. What about the disciplining side? I, I imagine that for the doctors serving on a medical board, the discipline side, that that that's probably tough in some ways, although I think nobody... Nobody wants to see um, a bad apple removed from the medical field more than other doctors would. That's correct. And, and it's a great question, Steve, because while the vast majority of physicians deliver quality health care, we know this from all the data that we see at the Federation of State Medical Boards in terms of the analyses and the assessments that go on, we do know also that there are uh, examples out there of physicians who um, engage in misconduct or uh, have issues, whether it be related to um, uh, drugs or other behavior that is irregular and inappropriate that needs to be addressed. And so every state medical board has a system in place by which anybody who feels that there has been any of those issues can um, file a complaint, lodge a uh, concern with the state medical board, which is then obligated to look into the matter. 
and every issue gets looked into, of course, the nature of the issue is, is critical. If it's an egregious issue, then state medical boards do have the authority to instantly act. And in rare occasions, that is needed uh, and is done. In other cases, uh, after uh, doing an investigation, and typically an investigation team is set up by a state medical board, they will look into the matter and do uh, as best a job as they can to determine if there is a basis for that concern or complaint. And the actions, the board actions that are ultimately taken, can range from everything from revocation of a license to suspension of a license for a period of time to probation or limitation of activity or some sort of reprimand. All of those board actions get recorded permanently in a um, database that the Federation of the State Medical Boards has and is shared by all the state medical boards as well. Oh, so a doctor can't hide past actions, bad things going on in one state by running to some other state. That's correct. In fact, years ago, uh, it was theoretically possible to have a board action in one state and then for you to cross state lines into another state and practice medicine for years until it, you know, the, the, uh, the law caught up with you, if you will. But now one of the things that the Federation set up was a disciplinary alert service, and all of the state medical boards subscribe to this. So as soon as a board action is taken and we are made aware, that information is now shared almost instantly within 24 hours with all the state medical boards so that if you were to seek licensure in another jurisdiction, that information um, would not be hidden. That would be made available. And not only that, Steve, we actually share that with other countries as well, like the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, and other places, so that uh, physicians thinking of being globally mobile, and many of them are, that information also follows you and should follow you. There's a growing presence on the Internet of doctor rating websites. Uh, I actually started one of these, and it's clear that most of the people putting ratings in, our, in on doctors are exceedingly happy with their physician. They love their physician. The, the average score of a physician on the online doctor rating site that I started, doctor score, is over 9 out of 10, where 10 is the best this, you know, patient satisfaction possibly could be. But there are low scores. There are open comments. One of the things that we try to make clear on this doctor rating site is that if you have – a complaint about a doctor that involves something serious, uh, something illegal going on, some some area of misconduct, that that putting in open comments on a doctor rating website is not the best way to deal with it. The thing to do is to contact the state medical board because they will look into things. That's correct, Steve, and, and that's vital and critical, I would say, because the mission of every state medical board is ultimately to protect the public. Um, and to make sure that quality health care is delivered. If you have information that uh, you feel is important to share, that is not something that you should put on a website. You're not going to get as much attention towards that than if you told our state medical boards. We are the ones who need to know that information and to determine if it needs to be acted upon. Uh, It's interesting. The Federation was actually the first group to publish and distribute the names of the country's disciplined physicians. We started doing that back in 1915. So this is part of our mission to disseminate information to protect the public. 
um, especially when it relates to serious actions that are taken against a physician. And so there are two ways you can do this. You can go to the Federation's website, www.fsmb.org, to get specific information about your particular state medical board, their contact information, etc. Or you can contact your state board directly if you have that information where you can report your concern. Now, we also have a very informed public nowadays, and I think it's appropriate to ask the appropriate questions about your physician's training and background, and typically the public can access that through the state medical boards, but the Federation also has a nationally consolidated database. We, it's, um, it's available through www.docinfo.org, D-O-C-I-N-F-O.org, for a nominal fee, I think it's under $10, um, you can find out information, regardless of where your your physician is uh, licensed to practice medicine, some specific information about where they went to medical school, where they did their training, and if they have any boards uh, certification in a specialty. I think some of our more cynical listeners, I don't know if they've been assured yet, but I think going into this, they might have thought, you know, these medical boards, they're run by doctors for doctors, and their goal isn't protecting their public. Their goal is to cover up for other doctors and to, to help doctors out. Well, I, I would be disappointed if that's what people thought, because what I, what I can tell you is that these state medical boards have um, not only physicians on their panels, but also have uh, lawyers, they have um, members of the public, um, and you know legislators oversee their activities to make sure that uh, what what happens is the right thing. And physicians are the most keen at making sure that the profession of medicine uh, is recognized for its ability to deliver quality care. If if there are any within that profession who are not doing that. Um, that is something that they are happy to share with with the public because it ultimately serves everyone's purpose, which is ultimately the delivery of quality health care. So that cynicism might be out there, but I can tell you in point and fact that uh, every concern is looked at and every uh, concern that is serious enough will have a decision made that is commensurate with the concern. That's super. And, and, and can uh, the the public who are reporting to a state medical board, are they assured of their uh, anonymity in any way? Yes, actually, yeah. Most state medical boards, in fact, the vast majority, have those policies in place. Um, there might be minor variations in that, but, you know, you'd have to check with each particular state medical board, but uh, generally that is the case. Okay, so the public will seek out their state medical board to report problems, and to look up information on training, those kinds of things are published. Would there be anything else that the public might use their local, their state medical board for, or the federation? I mean, you know, we share lots of information about our activities. Uh, if people have more questions, for instance, about maintenance of licensure, which, you know, as I say, ultimately will impact every one of the actively licensed physicians in the nation, they can certainly come to our website and learn more about it. The other thing I'll add, if I could real quick, Steve, is that from the point of view of the physicians, you know, when a board investigates a physician, there could be any number of issues. There could be a lack of knowledge. 
uh, in case they haven't kept up. But there could be other issues, behavioral issues that relate to substance abuse, for instance. So the boards really do a good job of looking into and trying to figure out what is the basis for this. And if there is an opportunity for rehabilitation, they may suspend a license while that program goes into place. Because I think there's a recognition also in this day and age that you don't just permanently remove someone's license whenever there is a complaint. You look into why is there a complaint and is there any opportunity for rehab. This is something that every profession does and should do. Um, as we've indicated at the very beginning, a lot of time and effort goes into the production of a physician. You don't want to just take that away without making sure that A, due process occurs, and B, that there is an opportunity for rehab if it's there. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you so much for your time today. Before I let you go, do you have any specific suggestions you would have for our audience, things that they should be thinking about to make sure they get great medical care? I think the good news is that the vast majority of physicians in the United States, despite what you hear about the healthcare system, um, are committed to doing the right thing and to make sure that they deliver quality health care. What the state medical boards are trying to do is to make sure that that happens, but it has to be a partnership, and the public has to be a part of that. If you hear something good, tell us about it. If you don't hear anything good, tell us about that as well. But this has to be a, a uh, partnership and as we move forward. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you for your time today. Thank you, Steve. On last week's show, we got to see that hospitals are being accredited by the Joint Commission. And we discussed in detail the kinds of things the Joint Commission does to assure the quality of the hospital experience. This week, we got to see who's looking after the doctors. It's primarily our state medical boards. Sure, board certification is another way doctors tell the public about their training and quality. We'll discuss that in a, in, uh, on another show. But today, we learned that state medical boards are there primarily to protect the public. Uh, there may be some concern about having a board composed just of physicians looking after physicians. And so typically, state medical boards will include members of the lay public. But truthfully, while that may assuage some concerns... Doctors are the most concerned people about patients, and the doctors who serve on state medical boards very much want to make sure that doctors are providing their patients great medical care without the kinds of problems that Dr. Chowdhury alluded to. And by, by and large, the vast majority of doctors are giving their patients great medical care. Those doctors tend not to make the front pages of the newspapers. The, the, the doctors who make the front pages of the newspapers, probably they did something very wrong. Uh, those doctors are rare, but they're very noticeable. We have to keep in mind all the doctors, the ones we know, the ones we don't know, who are giving patients great care and who are basically invisible, at least as far as the front pages of the newspaper are concerned. I think we can be assured somewhat that... We know that doctors had to obtain a license, which meant that they had to go and get good training at a medical school, pass the national examination, continue their uh, medical education throughout their careers. We have the added assurance through board certification that they have special qualifications in particular areas. And nowadays, you can even go to doctor rating websites like doctorscore.com and look up how other patients felt their care was from the doctor. That may not be the only measure of patient, um, I'm sorry, the only measure of doctor quality, 
but it's certainly an important measure of patient satisfaction, which is a key element of doctor quality. Dr. Chowdhury mentioned the Institute of Medicine report. There is great concern within medicine that we need to further improve the quality of care that's offered. We need to further reduce the number of medical errors and safety events that occur. We'll be talking on future shows with guests about how that's going to be done. Doing this is really a very complicated and evolving business. I look forward to us discussing it in greater detail. Well, that's our show for today. Our theme music is by the incomparable Michael Zioli. I hope you'll join us next week, and until then, I wish you the best of health. Thanks for listening to the show today. Remember to go to DrScore.com to get and give feedback about your doctor and to read others' recommendations about doctors in your area. It's a way to choose your path to healthcare empowerment. That's D-R-S-C-O-R-E.com, DrScore.com. And we'll see you next week right here on Getting Better Healthcare.